following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Good morning, ICC. It's a real privilege for me to come and to bring God's word. I'm really thankful. I've been so blessed by the teaching and the preaching here at ICC and uh, really I love the community here, like everything that's been going on this morning and the worship and the, the fellowship and seeing our community together. That's been such a blessing for me and for my family. So I'm very thankful to just give a little bit back through the teaching of God's word today. I realize that nobody in ICC ever wears a suit and tie when they come and preach. I know that. I know that. But for the past year and a half, I've been basically going to work in my pajamas and in my bedroom. And so I thought it's a good occasion or even like just an excuse to put on a tie. So uh, excuse me for that. Hope you don't mind. But today, I wanted to look at Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. So um, just uh, follow along on the screen there. I think you'll see. And uh, let me read the passage for you. Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right for, to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Back in the 1990s, there was a scientist working for Procter & Gamble who was experimenting with a chemical called hydroxypropyl beta-psychodextrin. And one day he came home from work and his wife asked him, did you quit smoking? And he was a regular smoker and at first he thought it was some kind of reverse psychology trick for his wife to get him to, to stop smoking. And he said no, but she replied, well, you don't smell like smoke is all. Apparently, hydroxypropyl beta-psychodextrin molecules have the property of binding onto volatile hydrocarbons. Now, what that means is essentially it traps odor. You spray this stuff onto anything and it prevents it from smelling. And so P&G saw this incredible opportunity for a new house cleaning product, and in 1996, they marketed this stuff called Febreze. The thing is, Febreze absolutely bombed. P&G couldn't figure it out. The stuff really did work. So why weren't people buying it? After spending millions of dollars in marketing and research, eventually they found the problem through an interview with one of their test subjects. She was a woman who owned nine cats. She kept a tidy home. Everything looked really clean in her house, but the smell of her cats were unbearable. You could smell them even before you came into the door. When they interviewed the woman, they asked her how often she used the Febreze product. She responded, oh, you know, whenever the house smells like cats. And so they asked, how often is that? And she was like, well, I don't know, maybe once a month? And they couldn't believe it. They were sitting there gasping, almost passing out from the stench. And finally they asked, do you smell anything now? 
Nope. And the mystery was solved. What Procter & Gamble had failed to account for is the fact that when the human nose is bombarded by the same strong odor again and again, it essentially becomes immune to that smell. That's the reason why you can't smell your own body odor, why you can't smell your bad breath. That's why the reason why the woman with nine cats had no idea that her house just reeked. And so it totally makes sense. Why buy a product that eliminates odors when you don't even know that you smell bad? Now, P&G realized the problem. They added these fragrant perfumes to the formula and marketed Febreze, not just as, uh, marketed Febreze as an air freshener instead of just an odor eliminator. And today, Febreze sells for over a billion dollars worth of product a year. Now, I read this story in Charles Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit. And I wanted to share it with you because it reminds me of how culture works. The culture you live in is so ingrained in your thinking and the way you behave, your habits, and your preferences that you don't even realize that it's there. It's like the story of the older fish who said to the younger fish, how's the water? And they responded, what's water? Our culture is so much a part of our very existence that we can't even realize that it's there. But no matter how immune you are to your own odor, other people know what you smell like. And so does Jesus. And I'm sorry to say that American Christians today, we smell bad. And we don't even realize it. So I want to talk about culture today based on the passage in Matthew 15. And as we go through Matthew 15, I'm going to focus on the three cultures that are present in this passage. First, I'll talk about the divisive culture of the disciples. Second, the, the, the diminishing culture of the woman. And third, the dog-under-the-table culture of Jesus. So first of all, let's talk about the divisive culture of the disciples. Now, this passage in Matthew 15 is one of the most controversial passages in, in the Gospels because Jesus does something that we can, we can never imagine him doing. He calls this woman a dog. It seems so uncharacteristic of Jesus, so cruel to this woman in need, that a lot of us have a hard time even believing that it, this is in the Bible. So how do we explain it? I believe that a careful reading of the text can help us to understand better what's going on here. So what I want to do is go through the text again and point out some of the details. And I've tried to emphasize these details on the slides. So uh, please try to follow along. Now, first of all, in verse 21, Jesus was in, went to the district of Tyre and Sidon, a Gentile territory, non-Jewish territory. And in verse 22, the woman is specifically described as an a Canaanite woman, also Gentile. But even as a non-Jew, this woman had great respect for Jesus and even calls him Lord. And then a strange thing happens. Nothing happens. Absolute silence. Verse 23 says, he did not answer her. And it emphasizes the point again by adding, he did not answer her a word. We have to understand, Jesus is not just sitting here thinking. He's not figuring out what he's going to do next. He's the Lord. He knows exactly what he's going to do. So I have to assume that if Jesus is waiting here, he's waiting for something. But the question is, what is he waiting for? I assume that he's waiting for the very next thing that happens in the passage. He's waiting for the disciples. He wants to see how the disciples will react to this woman in need. Now, imagine his disappointment when he sees the disciples. It says, they came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying after us. What a contrast. The woman comes to Jesus, 
crying to him. But the disciples come begging to Jesus. The woman wants mercy, and all the disciples want is for Jesus to deny that mercy. The woman's daughter is suffering from a real pain of the demon. The disciples' supposed suffering is just their annoyance at the woman. What a disappointment that these disciples turned out to be. Now, it doesn't say explicitly what's going on through Jesus' mind. But because of these hints in the text, I'm assuming that the next words that follow, Jesus speaks, has less to do with the woman and has more to do with the disciples. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, as harsh as that sounds, I believe what Jesus is really doing here. He's projecting what the disciples are thinking in order to serve as a rebuke to them. And the hint that we have is this little word, only. It was absolutely true and theologically correct that Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And it was also true that he was sent first to Israel. But it was not correct that he was sent only to Israel. Now we all know Jesus does not make mistakes. He does not have slips of the tongue. And so if Jesus added this extra word, I believe he has a purpose for it. it and he is not e expressing a misconceived theology on his own, he's trying to project the misconceived theology of the disciples. And so if we understand this point, that Jesus is not necessarily speaking out what he thinks, but is more likely speaking out what the disciples are thinking as a rebuke to them, then we can understand the next sentence in that context in verse 26. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Ouch. There is no justifying or minimizing the insult of that statement. He just called her a dog. And our very desire is to try to make Jesus look nice, to minimize the insult. But if we do that, we're missing the point. This is a big, fat, ugly insult because Jesus is revealing the disciples, their own ugly heart. Now, here is the divisive culture of the disciples. It's not, just, it's not that they think that they're better than everyone else. Most of them are simple, uneducated men. They have no reason to boast in themselves. But now they have this truth of the gospel. And the very Lord of the universe is by their side. And so they may not think of themselves as better than everyone else. But they may think of themselves as writer than everyone else. Now, I know writer is not a real word. But it should be. Because... While the disciples didn't know everything, and they certainly they weren't perfect, they can consider themselves as more right than this Gentile woman. And so the attitude of righter than you, the attitude of, well, I'm just trying to uphold the truth, gives the disciples this divisive culture so that they even treat this woman like a dog. Now, the divisive culture that the disciples, that we see here in the passage, is the same divisive culture that we see that's common among American Christians today. We may not consider ourselves better than everyone else, but we may very often consider ourselves righter than everyone else. Just like the disciples, we have the truth of the gospel. The very Lord of the universe is by our sides. And so with the same attitude, I'm just trying to uphold the truth. It's easy to look down on everyone else and think that they just have it all wrong. And not only look down on them, but even to treat them like dogs. And so this is the part where we need someone to tell us how much we smell. And believe me, the rest of the world is trying. 
Christians used to be known as the people who love everyone. Now American Christians are known as the people who hate everyone. Now we have our own resident expert who has spoken on this topic. In his sermon, Salt and Light, Dr. Steve Lee, he said, Sadly, non-Christians' opinion of the church is at an all-time low in America. According to Barner researchers, among younger Americans, only 16% had a favorable view of Christianity, and only 3% had a favorable view of evangelicals. Now think about that. 97% of younger Americans today think that Christians stink. But it's not enough for us to know that we stink, but we have to know where that stink is coming from. That is, what are the specific elements of American Christian culture that make us so divisive against everyone else? Now, for me, I'm actually doing a PhD in intercultural studies. And so I could go on all day about the different elements of culture and how they're influencing American Christians in positive and negative ways. But for today's sermon, I just want to point out one thing. The one thing is the difference between analytic and holistic thinking. Now, Richard Nisbet is a researcher and professor of sociology, so, uh, socio, social psychology who wrote this fascinating book called The Geography of Thought, how, uh, how Asians and Westerners think differently. Now, in the book, Nisbet examines many of the differences in the ways of thinking between these two cultures, and one of them is analytic and holistic thinking. So generally, in general, Westerners are more analytic and Asians are more holistic. Now, I understand the irony of this statement, that here I am, an Asian-American pastor, preaching to a congregation that is majority Asian-American, trying to teach you guys about the holistic way of thinking, which is a prominent element of Asian culture. Uh, and so even though Nisbet has kind of grouped these categories into general ethnic and national uh, parts of the world, uh, which may not always play out in the real world. That there are Asians who are very analytic. There are Westerners who are very holistic. Uh, but still, the, the principle is valid, and it can help us to understand American Christian culture a little more. So in general, Westerners are more analytic. They break things down into individual parts, figure out how things work. They focus on the main objects that are at the center of attention. Asians, on the other hand, they tend to be more holistic thinking, viewing the world not in terms of individual objects, but as entire environments, having more awareness not just of the main objects in the center of attention, but the objects in the background and the relationship between the two. There was one experiment where developmental psychologist Anne Fernald and Hiromi Morikawa examined and compared Japanese mothers and American mothers who had babies of six, 12, and 19 months old. In the experiment, they asked the mothers to clear out all their normal toys, and they introduced uh, just four toys, a stuffed dog, a toy pig, a car, and a truck. And they asked the mothers just to have a normal playtime, and uh, as the mothers played with the children and the toys, the researchers simply observed the behavior. In the results, they found that Americans' mothers used twice, twice the number of naming labels as the Japanese mothers. And they would be like, this is a car. Hey, look, on the car, there's the wheels. Look at the wheels spin. And so they, it's very analytical thinking. They take the object, break it apart in the pieces, examine the pieces. That's analytic thinking. The Japanese mothers, on the other hand, 
had very holistic thinking. They wouldn't even name the car, let alone name the parts of the car. They might just look at the car and just say, vroom, vroom. And instead of examining the car, and even, they, didn't even just, they didn't even play with it as a car. Many of the mothers, they would just practice giving the car to the child in a polite manner. Look, see, two hands, I give it to you, very polite. Now you say thank you. You give it to me now, I take it back. That's how you do it, very good. Now, Nisbet concludes, American children, they're learning that the world is mostly a place with objects. Japanese children, that the world is mostly about relationships. So maybe some of you are asking, which one is better? That's totally the question that someone with analytic thinking would ask. <laughs> but of course we need both. Sure, the American children would grow up with a lot more knowledge about the different parts of the car. And maybe they would look down on the Japanese kids who seem to be less observant. But the Japanese kids will grow up knowing a lot about relationship, about community, about how a car is used to serve others. And they may look at the Americans and think, no manners. What a bunch of barbarians. And so this analytic thinking has very much influenced Americans today. We're very good at picking things apart, figuring out what's right and what's wrong. And so American Christians have become very vocal to the point that pretty much everyone else is wrong. And while the rest of the world looks at American Christians and thinks, no manners, what a bunch of barbarians. Now the real point is that the cultural, this cultural element makes it impossible for us to listen, listen to others. With our analytic thinking, if we see one issue that's wrong with someone, we can become preoccupied with trying to prove ourselves right and prove the other person wrong. And so we can't listen we can't listen to them, can't listen to the people we disagree with, even on one point, even though they may have valid uh, issues on other points. But we need to be able to listen even to those we disagree with. Now, that doesn't mean we compromise on our truth. It doesn't mean we change what we believe. But our tendency is that if we disagree on one issue with a person, we discount the person entirely as being wrong on every issue. They are just dogs under the table. And what applies on a societal level also applies on an individual level. Think about your reaction when you disagree with someone, one-on-one. -on -one. And when we see that person is wrong, our natural tendency is to try to prove them wrong so that we can be proven right, purely analytical. And while that may be helpful for some things, it may be weak in other things. For example, if that person is arguing you arguing with you, and you believe that they're wrong, even if they are wrong, that wrong point is still important to them. It's still meaningful to them. And so by persisting to argue against them, we could be communicating that, I don't care what's important to you. I'm not listening to you. I don't see you. I don't know you. And so that person, they can assume that if you don't care what's important to me, you probably don't even love me. Now, this actually applies directly to the parent-child relationship. I'm really thankful that the Catalyst Youth Group is here today. Um, I don't know if I say it often enough, but I love you guys. I think you guys are awesome. Uh, I'm really thankful that you could here come with your parents and worship today. Uh, but there are a lot of applications between parents and children in the holistic and analytic thinking. For parents, there may be so many times when you think your kids are wrong. 
they're acting weird, they say nonsense, they make bad choices. And so, sure, that may be true. There may be some times when they are wrong. But even if they are wrong, what they say, what they do, even the mistakes they make, it's still important because it's important to them. To think holistically, you have to prioritize not only what is right for your kids, but what is important to your kids. That doesn't mean you have to agree on everything, but if it's important to them, then it should be important to you too. Now, for the kids, you may think that your parents don't understand anything about you. After all, after all their annoying attempts to control your life, you may wish that they just leave you alone. But if you understand the analytic thinking that's motivating your parents, you can understand that it's because they really love you that they're picking apart your life, analyzing the parts and trying to make it better. But here's the challenge for you to do some holistic thinking. Think about the Japanese mom who, even from the young age of their baby, is trying to teach the baby how to say thank you, how to be polite like a real human being. Have you guys learned that lesson? Make it a challenge to yourself, even just once a day, to say thank you to your mom, thank you to your dad. Say, thanks, mom, for giving me that ride. I know you go out of your way for that. Thanks, Dad, for the meal. It was really delicious. And you may think, well, what is that going to do for me? In analytic thinking, yeah, maybe it will do nothing for you. But in a holistic way, it builds a background of relationship. It contributes to the strengthening of the environment of the family. And so everything else gets better. And so that's a little bit about analytic and holistic thinking that can really help to understand the divisive culture that we live in today. So our first point today was the divisive culture of the disciples. The second point is the diminishing culture of the woman. Jesus' shocking statement of referring to the woman and her daughter as dogs under the table may make more sense if we take it as a lesson that Jesus is trying to teach to the disciples. But the fact still remains that he did speak this insult to the woman, not to the disciples. So how do we understand what Jesus is doing with the woman? We can understand what's going on a little better when we compare this passage in Matthew 15 with the parallel passage in Mark 7. One of the big differences is that while Matthew was written to a largely Jewish audience, Mark was written to a largely Gentile or non-Jewish audience. And so for a few examples, there's no mention of son of David in Mark's version. Uh, That detail would have been more meaningful for the Jewish readers of Matthew. And instead of a Canaanite woman in Matthew, Mark mentions her specific ethnicity, Syrophoenician. And that detail would have had more relevance for the Gentile readers of Mark. And in Mark, there's no mention at all of the disciples. Then the question is, if Jesus is projecting this harsh image to correct someone's opinion, then who is he trying to correct? Whose opinion is he projecting? I believe that it's the woman herself. Think about the audience. Matthew is written to a Jewish audience, so Jesus' projection of ugliness of the disciples' culture would have been a rebuke, not just to the Jewish disciples, but to the Jewish readers of Matthew. And so any Jewish reader would also be tempted to think that the Messiah is for the Jews, the Gentiles, back of the line. And so also in Mark, Jesus is doing the same thing for the Gentile reader. For for this Gentile woman, Jesus may be projecting her own thoughts of inadequacy, her own thoughts that she is not good enough 
for Jesus. And not just her, but all the Gentile readers who are reading the book of Mark, they also would have felt the pressure of living in the Jewish society, facing ethnic discrimination, feeling like second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And for the Jews in Matthew 15, their culture would have told them that they are too big, writer than everyone else. But for the Gentiles in Mark 7, their culture told them that they were too small, wronger than everyone else. And perhaps Jesus is trying to correct this woman's own opinion of herself. And in the end, she gets it. She has the confidence that even if she is unworthy of Jesus, like a dog under the table, Jesus' grace is so much greater than her unworthiness. He doesn't just toss her some crumbs. He lifts her up, gives her a seat at the the table as a true child of God. Now, for some of us, our cultures tell us that we're too big. And so we look down on others through our divisive cultural lenses. But for others of us, our cultures, our society, everything outside of us, even our own thoughts within us, they tell us that we're too small. That we we are slaves to this diminishing culture. Everything we see and feel and experience tells us that we're not worthy. And sometimes we do feel like dogs under the table. Now, I know that this can happen to anyone in any situation. Some of you may be in a toxic work environment. There may be oppressive relationships in your family or among your friends. Or maybe just the pressure you give yourself that you're not successful enough, not beautiful enough, not important enough. But whatever pressures people in general feel from the, the culture around them, I believe that the youth feel these pressures ten times more. The preteen and teenage years is this unique time in life when all the pressures of friends and family and school and community is just multiplied exponentially. How many times have you, as youth, felt that something happened that was so bad, so embarrassing, so disappointing, that it was like the end of the world? Now, recently, I've been getting into the movie genre. The youth group knows that I love movies, but um, recently I've been getting into this movie genre of high school dramas. Last time I preached for the youth group, uh, a few weeks ago, I mentioned the Netflix movie Moxie. Now, I'm just mentioning it again because I really recommend it. I, out of the recent high school dramas, this, was, this is my current favorite. But I'm not actually going to talk about this movie. I'm, I want to mention another movie, also in Netflix, called The Half of It. Um, now, before I get into the movie itself, I need to explain a little footnote. I was a little torn about whether or not I should recommend this movie or mention it as an illustration. I really enjoyed the movie. It was smart, profound, moving. It had deep characters and a captivating story. But it has a pretty negative portrayal of Christians. The movie takes place in a small American town called Squamish, and most of the people go to church. The Christians are portrayed as closed-minded and really kind of dumb and just generally blind to anyone or anything outside their narrow existence. And the characters who are intelligent and deep and compelling, they're either self-declared atheists or Christians who are questioning their faith. And so by the end of the movie, you're pretty much rooting for the atheists. So I was really torn about using this movie as an illustration, but I decided to do it for two reasons. First of all, like I said, it's a good movie. And I think there's a value to the art of a movie that can be enjoyed by discerning viewers, even if you disagree with the message. 
But the second reason is, uh, this is exactly the kind of critique that American Christians need to hear. Like I said before, we don't smell ourselves. And so when we see this negative portrayal of Christianity like this, our first reaction can be to become defensive. Oh, it's so unfair that Hollywood is persecuting Christians like that. But on the other hand, this is really how non-Christians look at us. This is really what they think of us. We should listen to the critique and take it seriously. Okay, that's the end of the footnote. Now onto the movie itself. Now the half of it is about a Chinese-American girl named Ellie Chu who helps this boy named Paul to win over the girl that he's in love with. And so she writes letters for him, teaches him about the books that the girl likes. She coaches him on what to say and texts the girl on his behalf, all in an attempt to get them together. Now, of course, the story is more complicated than that. But that's actually not what I want to talk about. I just wanted to mention Ellie Chu and her experience. Now, as far as I can tell from the movie, Ellie is the only person of color at her entire high school and probably in the entire town. But she's super smart, she's funny, she's a deep thinker. She sees the world with an amazing perspective. She was born in China and came to America at five years old. Her father has a PhD in engineering. Way to go, Asian American fathers with PhDs. <laughs> and he came to this little town to work on a local train, uh, to work at, work at the local train station, thinking that he could work his way up as an engineer somewhere. But speaking English with an accent and not being from around here, 12 years have passed, and he's still just the train station manager of Squamish. Now, Ellie is faithful to her father. She still misses her mother, who passed away when she was young. But with all the complexities of her character and her background and her thinking, the entire rest of the high school, they see none of that. To them, they see Ellie Chu, and they diminish her down to the one single phrase, chugga chugga choo choo. Now, a few times in the movie, you see this, this scene of a, a pickup truck passing by Ellie on her bicycle, and it's full of high school kids in the back. And as they pass, they yell out to her, chugga chugga choo choo. In another scene, she goes to a party with all these high school kids in the house. As soon as she enters the room, all the kids yell, the Chinese girl. Everything about her, all her thoughts, her desires, her character, all diminished down to the one thing that people see, the Chinese girl. Now, maybe some of you know what that feels like. For you Catalyst students, middle school and high school can be the most brutal years of your life. If you stand out in any way, kids have no mercy, and they'll make you feel terrible about it. And when you're surrounded by a culture that diminishes you, telling you that you're small, that you're nothing more than the one thing that people can see, eventually you may start to believe it too. Now there's this one scene in the movie where Ellie has been hanging out with Paul, helping him to get the girl of his dreams. And he's gotten to know Ellie and appreciate her as a person. But then yet again, some high school kids pass by on their pickup truck and they yell out to her one more time, chugga chugga choo choo. And like the thousands of times before, Ellie is just going to ignore it. But this time, Paul is with her. And so Paul gets up and he runs after the truck and he throws a rock at them and he yells, Who are you calling Choo Choo? 
And then the truck takes off and the kids flee for their lives. Paul ends with the classic line, yeah, you better run. (laughs) And you can see the expression on Ellie's face. After all these years of being diminished and diminished to just the Chinese girl, finally someone sees her. Someone stands up for her. Someone lifts her up. At the end of Matthew 15, Jesus says, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. For every time that you feel like a dog under the table, remember that Jesus' grace is greater than any of your weaknesses. Those who would judge you, your friends at school, your peer group, people at work, even your own family, sometimes when you may judge yourself, realize that they are all unworthy judges. Anyone who thinks they're worthy to stand in judgment over you just doesn't smell their own stench. But Jesus has lifted you up, lifted you up. He's transformed you into a child of God, and he has given you a seat at his table. In Christ, the diminishing, the diminishing culture has no more grip on you. Now, so far, we've talked about the divisive culture of the disciples. We've talked about the diminishing culture of the woman. And now I want to talk about the dog-under-the-table culture of Jesus. When you think about it, Jesus does some really amazing things for both the disciples and for this woman to lift them up above their cultures. In order to see how, let's compare the woman's request with the disciples' request. The disciples, in their self-centeredness, their misunderstanding of Jesus, they make this direct and specific demand of Jesus as if he is there to do their bidding. Send her away, for she is crying after us. Now the woman, by contrast, she doesn't dare to tell Jesus what to do, but in humility and reverence simply expresses her request for help, but she leaves it completely up to him about how he will fulfill that request. It's like this honorific submission of agency where she's leaving it up to him. Who am I to tell you how to do your job? You just do whatever you think is best. And so she simply says, have mercy on me, Lord. Lord, help me. Essentially what she's saying is, whatever you do, Jesus, I'll just take it. This honorific submission of agency. Now compare that attitude with the type of attitude that Jesus has to the woman in verse 28. O woman, great is your faith. Of course, Jesus is not here calling her Lord, but you can see that it's almost mirroring the same language that she used for him with the same honor that she gave to him. Now he is giving to her. And he treats her with the same submission, the same honorific submission of agency, that he respects her and that the same way that she has given to him and respects him, not mentioning the specific, specific action that he's going to do, keeping it general, so essentially saying the same thing to her. That when he says, be it done for you as you desire, it's the same attitude. Whatever you want, I'll just do it. Now Jesus goes against the divisive culture of the disciples by allowing himself to look like he's in the wrong in order to correct them and make them truly right. And he goes against the dismissive culture of the woman by allowing himself to be diminished in order to lift her up. And Jesus does the same for you. 
Jesus is immersed in this dog-under-the-table culture. It's not just the disciples who want to keep the woman down like a dog. It's not just the woman who believes it, but it's everyone else around. Everyone is trying to keep everyone else down like dogs under the table. The synagogue rulers were oppressing the synagogue members, but Jesus set them free. The people who were bound by illnesses and demons, and Jesus healed them. Religious leaders persecuted even the people that Jesus healed, but Jesus stood up for them. Women and children were put at the, at the back of the line, but Jesus calls them forward and sees them first. Sinners and outcasts were excluded by their community, shamed by even their family. But Jesus ate with them. He loved them. Everywhere that Jesus went, people were treating other people like dogs under the table. But Jesus was lifting them up. By the end of the story, the tables had turned. Now Jesus was the one who was arrested and falsely accused. He was beaten with rods and tortured with whips. He was insulted and shamed and spat upon, treated like a dog under the table. And yet he submitted himself to it all. And he did it for you. Are you like the disciples, just trying to stand up for the truth? Of course, that's a good and necessary thing. But also realize that Jesus did not divide himself from those who are wrong. He stood right by them. He suffered for them. He even died on the cross for those who are wrong. Jesus went to the cross and allowed the entire world to look at him and think that he was wrong so that the, those who are truly wrong could be made right again. Or are you like the woman, feeling like the whole world is trying to diminish you, to push you down like a dog under the table? Well, let me tell you, Jesus knows exactly how you feel. Jesus knows exactly what that's like. He feels your pain, and he wants to lift you up. He wants to set you free. Jesus allowed himself to be treated like a dog under the table in order to make you a true son or daughter of God with an eternal place at his table. Let's pray together. As we bow our heads, I just want to give you a moment to reflect upon God's word, give you a moment just to pray on your own. And I want to encourage you to pray about this incredible Jesus that we see in the passage. So many times, maybe some of you, even in this room, look around at the world and think, wow, Christianity is so ugly. But then if we look deeper in the text, we see Jesus is so beautiful. He's so compassionate. He's so compelling. Let that be your prayer. When you see the ugliness in your life, in your heart, you see the weakness, you see the world trying to push you down, look to Christ. Even as this woman just simply cried, Oh Lord, have mercy on me. Let that be your prayer, even this morning, to pray to Christ, have mercy on me. May you lift me up out of the culture of this world. Or maybe some of you are like, like the disciples, that you know the truth of the gospel. You know that Jesus is in your heart. You know that he's right by your side. And maybe it's hard to understand why so much of the world is against you. Again, 
this world may look uglier and uglier. The problems in this country may look so discouraging and bring us down. But Jesus is so beautiful. He is so powerful. He is so right that he himself would be counted among those who are wrong. He himself would be seen as condemned on the cross in order to make us right. May that be our attitudes as well, that we would go to the weak, we would go to the wrong, we would go to those who are suffering and be counted as one of them so that they could be made right in God's eyes. I want to give you a moment and just think about those things, to lift your heart up, pray to Jesus, have mercy on me, use me. May the beauty of Jesus shine everywhere we go. Lord, we do pray that prayer. Lord, we thank you for Christ. Lord, that he can so, look so deep into our hearts, see our pain and frustration, our discouragement, even the times that we tell lies to ourselves and bring ourselves down. Lord, and yet Jesus sees it all. He's experienced it all. He went through it all in order to lift us up. And pray for everyone in this room, for each one. Lord, you know their hearts. Pray that you would speak to them even now. Lord, let them see the visions of Christ. See how beautiful he is. How compassionate, compelling he is. That he has brought us up so high to have a seat at your table. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.